Madam Clerk? Are we good to right. go? We are good to go, thank you. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the October 26, 2022 uh, QPSD. Uh, Madam Clerk, can we do a roll call, please? Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. And Trustee Esteen is excused, but we do have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, welcome, everybody. As everyone knows, we begin the evening uh, for this meeting with talking about our purpose. So the purpose of the QPSC, uh, the QPSC is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. The QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical ops and patient care. Um, uh, again, starting off with our purpose. Um, public comment, Madam Clerk? No public comment. Okay, with that, we'll go right into the open session agenda items. Item A, sorry, as a preview for this evening, I hope everyone can stick around. We're gonna end uh, the evening with uh, sort of two marquee kind of presentations, uh, hearing from the bridge program, uh, and then of course, hearing um, from Dr. Rujosa and the quality team on readmissions, which has, actually has some really, really kind of interesting data. So I'm gonna try to move us along so we can get uh, to, to those highlights this evening. So uh, as everyone knows, we, we, we try to pick an article of learning um, uh, at the beginning. This month, uh, uh, we chose an article, uh, which is basically a podcast uh, transcript from one of my favorite quality people, Dr. Don Berwick. Uh, for anyone who's been in this room and for people who come here, I think there are a, a lot of uh, Berwickian fans uh, in this room. It's a little bit of a long transcript, 12, 14 pages. It's actually a very interesting podcast for those of you who listen. It's called Fixing Healthcare. Uh, I have no ownership stake in that podcast. So uh, I just want to uh, say a, a few of the uh, quotes that I extracted from this and then open up to the trustees there. I mean, uh, there was a lot to, to, to glean from this. And I, I think our CMO might have some comments as well. So I'm going to pick out just probably about four of my quotes from Mr. Berwick, and then hopefully this will spur a little bit of conversation. First quote, I think there's a will in the workforce to work on making things better systemically that can be unleashed through proper leadership and a lot of volunteerism. This is not about big industrial efforts. It's about letting people help. I, I sort of like that spirit of volunteerism and, 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 and this, this continued contribution to, to what we do here. The second one, there are scientific foundations for making things better, understanding systems and working at a systemic level instead of individual heroism and using data properly. We misuse data all the time in healthcare. We don't use it to illuminate variation and how things are actually going. We use it to make judgments or to provide incentives and rewards, which I think is bankrupt. Dr. Berwick is uh, never shy about giving his opinion on things. Um, next, I think clinicians do feel they're doing their best because they are doing their best. They're really normal human beings, flawed, frail people in a difficult context, trying as hard as they can. The quality improvement science says trying harder is the wrong plan. It can't work. You're already trying as hard as you can. The problem is you're in a context 
which doesn't allow you to be reliable. We haven't organized the system to support reliable application of preventative steps. That's sort of a big one, everyone trying hard and maybe the system uh, being part of the problem. And, and my, my last one, and then I'll open up to the trustees. So the trick is to learn to think systemically for clinicians to understand that they are citizens in complex environments much bigger than themselves. And only when we get involved in buoyantly, happily, joyfully in celebrating and working in the, on those interdependencies with the support of leaders can we make progress. It's really frustrating to try to be a hero all the time. It doesn't work. So with that, I'll open it up to Trustee Banerjee and Trustee Jensen, any comments? They, they, I, 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 I know my friends and compadres are big fans of Don Berwick as well. So uh, Trustee Jensen, then Trustee Banerjee, and then Dr. Tornabene. Um, thank you, Dr. Chair. I actually have met Mr. Berwick and he was my husband's boss for some period of years. Oh, wow. CMS, yeah. And he is um, as, as well loved inside of, of the medical organization as he is um, by all people who understand his, how hard he has worked to improve quality in healthcare. I am, I appreciate your quotes too, because I was actually, uh, your, your last quote was something that I was really looking at and I, to continue it, um, you talked about clinicians feel that they're doing the best, they're doing their best. And that's certainly true. But um, the, the, to continue on that, the, 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 the rest of his quote is that um, quality improvement science says that trying harder is the wrong plan. So, you know, to help people, it can't work for, for people in our organization, especially people who are working hard and caring for people, caring for their patients, caring about the job that they do, it's not trying harder. And as John Burroughs says, the problem is you're in a context that doesn't allow you to be reliable and you're already trying as hard as you can. So I think that's just important to keep in mind for, for everyone. And I, as a board member, um, understand that and appreciate that very much. And I, I think that we're getting to the root going to the root cause, the way that this organization is moving is really the right approach. Thanks, Trustee Jensen. Hi, Trustee Banerjee. Yeah, um, thanks, Chair Bukitz. Uh, You know, some of the quotes that you and uh, Tracy mentioned were all the ones that really resonated with me as well. I think um, um, the one about like, not just working harder, but like understanding that uh, doing more is not enough, but that we need to have really needing cooperation, collaboration, and respect across many, many boundaries. That was one where he said that we really need uh, to be with the kind of complex systems that we are working with, that it really needs kind of blurring some of the boundaries and working across there. Yeah, we struck with the example that they discussed about the county visit that they went to outside Stockholm, where he said that they devoted as many resources to prevention and to other conditions about that as they did to superb acute care. And so where you pay attention and where you resource things are so important. And so as we kind of transform from sick care into like the thinking about the continuum of care, really we have to resource some of the places where we see our own structural barriers come up. The other thing that really... Uh, is that he talked about the waste. And so um, 
and Darshan and the quality and the, uh, the many leaders who were at the beta conference can also um, last week would say, talk about like, there are just so many things and they call it like, gross like get rid of the stupid stuff like yeah. and there is and for folks who are there um know like there is so much and he said 85 percent of them are not the kind of regulatory joint commission cms stuff like they are things that we order and we do that we think is like totally beneficial to the patient but are not so i think like he talks about like uh, a couple of other things which is solidarity he said like you know this is where we need to find um where exclusion and marginalization exists and address it uh one um um yeah so to be able to like so current system is is actually rationed care he said like he's talked about how it's rationed care that not everybody gets what it is uh, what they need because of our the way our operational and financial systems are designed and he said inequity is manifested and embodied in our system and the way it is construed and operated and if we were to reduce some of that waste that is within us it would um, allow for not the kind of scarcity rationed care we have but that needs solidarity because it means asking looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying like what can we what is redundant what is not at all um, relative to the patient and then finally i was kind of applying this article to our own situation so you know looking at the true north metrics and seeing the amount of red <laughs> over there um, to see to see celebrate all the great things that are happening within our system for years and years that's happening but also the fact that patient satisfaction data hasn't changed a lot over the last 10 years and that you know our administration has changed like in the eight years almost eight years that i've been here we've had so many cmos four different ceos uh, in, including one interim different coos different cfos um a bulk of the staff have remained um in place though and so how are we kind of like doing that work where we are looking within ourselves and reflecting and seeing like what it is we should be doing as a full body, all of us. So that last, the, his last quote really um, resonated with me because sometimes coming from a grassroots movement orientation that I come in where there is solidarity across issues and identity, seeing the kind of individualism um, that we see sometimes about like our our group, our tribe, our bit, is that there's leadership seat that's empty right now to make the solidarity case. We need a healthy health system. And we, in our dreams, imagine if we can come together with a voice, not just of self-interest, but of investment in the well-being of the community. If we could find the platform and the voice to do that and the generosity and solidarity to give up some of the habits we've had of just seeking more and more for ourselves and, that, and, and really looking at the bottom line of um, community wellness, then we might be able to like 
transform some of the paradigms. So I think like I'm looking at like from both from the board perspective, but from our own perspective, like as we shift and put patients in the center and equity around it all, like what does that mean for each one of us? Thanks, Trustee Banerjee. Dr. Tornabene. Thank you. The, there was so much in this transcript. I, it's, it's really hard to land on just one, but I have to admit that the, the line in the article that really spoke to me uh, is on page 13. And it's when um, Don Ber Berwick is saying, the boundary that I'm running at now is the boundary between health and healthcare. And my, my brain took that term boundary and turned it into barrier. And, and it made me think of, okay, where do we see the barriers between health and healthcare and where in our system are we actually breaking that down? And we're breaking that down in a place like the Bridge Clinic. We're, we'll hear from Dr. Herring later this evening. Um, but what are other ways that we can break down that barrier, Alameda Health System, and redesign programs to, to make the barrier to healthcare, that boundary between health and healthcare, either porous or much lower? Hallelujah. Thanks, Dr. Tornbene. Any other comments on Dr. Berwick's article? All right, everybody, thank you for entertaining uh, that point of discussion. Let's close item A and let's go to uh, uh, item B. This is the consent agenda. Trustees, the consent agenda is before you, uh, before entertaining a motion to uh, approve the entirety, anything that needs to be pulled for comment or discussion. I'm gonna make the suggestion that we uh, pull the medical staff policy immunization and vaccines just for discussion. But barring that, may I entertain a motion to approve everything except for item B3? So moved. I'll second. Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Thank you, the motion passes. The, the reason I asked to, to pull uh, item B3, the medical staff policy on immunization and vaccines was, there was a lot of red line uh, through this particular item. So I guess my question to the medical staff was, was this one ready for prime time? Um, I, I see Ms. Jackson, I see Ms. Dalton in the room. G good evening, Ms. Jackson. Can you talk to us about a lot of red line through that particular one? Was it ready for prime time? Yeah, sure. Um, the, it, I thought you guys like to see what's being changed. Ultimately, what it is is it's taking two medical staff policies and combining them into one and making it a multi-facility uh, document. So there was one policy that was uh, healthcare or health status, which which listed the requirements for uh, flu vaccination, PPD, MMR, all of those things for new applications, new applicants. And then there was a separate policy for COVID. And since they were both relative to vaccination and immunization status, we merged the two policies and created one. So the red line is just, it, we took one as the foundation and dumped in the other one. So that red line language technically is an existing policy that's just being put into to one combined policy. Okay, makes sense. Uh, just as a go, appreciation for the comment, as a go forward, we don't sure. really necessarily need to see red line. We can just see final doc. Okay. Um, and, um, but uh, I think, I think it, 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 it gave a nice summary statement on immunization and vaccinations. Trustees, any questions on that item? Um, with, with that, may I entertain a motion to approve item Bravo 3, the immunization and vaccines for the med staff? I move approval. On second. Madam Clerk. 
Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. And Trustee Jensen. Aye. Motion passes. Thank you. So uh, before I leave the, uh, before we close out item B, I would like to make one comment on um, one of the system-wide policies, plans, and procedures. It was entitled the FY 2023 Quality Assurance and Performance Improvement Plan. Boy, this was a heck of a document. It, it, is, it is a broad, broad outline of how we do quality in our system. It's a, it's a little bit of a dense read, but it has all the right stuff in there. I think I'm gonna ask um, uh, Dr. Tornabene and the quality team, if okay, to bring that back to us in presentation form so we can, so we can have discussion because there, I mean, it's, uh, I, I mean this in a complimentary way, it's very dense. And it, 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 uh, it really gives the detail of how things are going. And, and, it, uh, it, and it's sort of like when you read it three times or four times, you can actually understand how the system flows. So I, I, ultimately, I think it's an excellent document. And I think this is the kind of document which should be given to people when we onboard them mm -hmm. through the organization. But, but uh, I, I've asked Dr. Tornabeni and the team to give us a walkthrough uh, in the near future. And that could be next month or it could be January or February. Yeah. Trustees. Yeah, thank you, Chair. Yeah, I do wanted to lift up like that is an excellent and yep. just the way in which you have like laid it out and um, very clear, but also uh, really this is showing how equity is embedded. And I was going to make that request too, because I have all these questions, page 35 or 162, like how, like just digging in into that, like how are we identifying like, you know, best practices? How are we prioritizing um, some of the metrics for improvement and things? So this would be like a really lovely, uh, juicy one to discuss and to hear from your perspectives a little bit more about how you like develop this. I know that. Uh, uh, so, yeah. So, so I, thank you. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee, for supporting them because, I mean, that document didn't turn up overnight. I mean, that was a lot of work in there. So, uh, Dr. Tornabene, yes. may I consider for next month, maybe we give you guys the full prime time instead of maybe a QI report? Yeah, let, let's do that. It, that um, I'll ask our QI project um, to come back to come to the January meeting. We'll highlight the copy plan for um, our November meeting. Um, there's so much in that document. I, I you know, huge kudos to our quality team. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I would love to, to share the details of that. Uh, one of my favorite things in there is that quality map of AHS. Yeah. Um, it's a picture is worth a thousand words for that one. And that was in appendix A Yeah. And, and, and a potential request. Maybe that could be a fixed standing item at the top of every quality report. Uh, as sort of our roadmap when we're putting, because there's so many committees which feed and ultimately land them here on this evening with us. So uh, I'll, I'll ask you guys to consider that as part of a standing document in your report. Um, Thank you. With that, we'll close out item B and we'll go to item C. This is the part of the evening where we engage with our medical staff leaders. Um, I see Dr. Joshi in the room. Um, I don't see Dr. Afzali, is he in here? I see Dr. Lana Lee, who's our incoming chief of staff. Uh, Dr. Lee, are you in here for Dr. Williams? Yes, I yeah, am. Yeah. Oh, so, so, so this is a nice preview of our incoming chief of staff. So I'm gonna give it to Dr. Uh, Joshi first. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. I'm looking for Dr. Afzali, does anyone see him? 
I'm here. Oh, you are here, dude? Oh, thanks. Got it. All right, you're next. Good evening, Dr. Joshi. Okay, good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me here. Um, my report is there, uh, structured along our pillars. And the report is there for you to see. Um, what I wanted to call everyone's attention to was item C and D. So in terms of item C, um, we had our HCAP performance presented at the MEC and there's been a patient handbook and the medical education sheet that's been worked upon that will roll out in November. And this is an important part. Um, I know that Dr. Lofton has talked a lot about patient experience lately and we've been working with Angela who's the interim at patient experience. So we are excited about this handbook and what the education sheet will do and working with the team in terms of that for enhanced communication with our patients. And then in terms of item D, uh, it's really unfortunate that the um, proposed measure AB 2904 did not pass Governor, Governor Newsom. It went through the House and the Senate in our California state government um, but was vetoed. And this was something that we had been working very closely with Deb Stebbins. And um, at this point, we, we the MEC are excited and definitely engaged to continue to work with the board and with the district of what we can do to move forward for strategy and strategizing for Alameda Hospital. Um, also under sustainability, wanna highlight that in the springtime, we will have a pediatric readiness survey come to the hospital. This is different than joint commission, uh, but even though it's gonna happen in the springtime, we have been working uh, with NILDA really under her umbrella and regulatory combining with um, uh, materials management and respiratory and nursing leadership, et cetera, uh, getting ready for this. So it's actually been really exciting. And one of the ways that we're preparing is through insight to simulations. We did that just last week with the case of a pediatric asthmatic case. So we look forward to that and being ready, not just for the survey, but really so that we can always be better prepared to handle our pediatric patients at Alameda Hospital. And with that, I end my report and happy to answer any questions. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Joshi? Dr. Joshi, my question is around 2904. If you had a way to help guide us in as we have these dialogues, because you know they're, they're, this is a multi-legged stool, right? We have, the, we have a, a healthcare district board who's a central player in this. We have the med staff who's a central player in this. And of course the health system who's a central player in this. If you could make recommendations as to how we navigate the dialogue of, of this, what would be your recommendations? I think my recommendation would be to start with a conversation about what it is that us, each of these tiers of this kind of stool that you described, what do we want? Um, what is our vision for what Alameda Hospital looks like? There are different ways a hospital could function. Anything from the so-called freestanding ED, which is a very broad term and means lots of different things, to a fully functional tertiary care hospital. Some is realistic, some is not realistic. But I think we need to start by saying, what do we envision what Alameda Hospital could and should look like? And then under the lens of what role would that play within AHS as a whole? What role does that play for the Alameda Island, the town community? Um, and then go from there. Um, and, and when I say this, what I mean to say is that 
these discussions should be much bigger than just simply being, you know, retrofitting for seismic preparedness. It really is an opportunity uh, to look at our current state of what Alameda Hospital can do and what the future state could look like. Understand the future state would then let us understand what infrastructure uh, would we potentially need, what types of specialty services would we potentially need, equipment, et cetera. Um, and we, the MEC, would be able to inform from the physician side, if we were to take care of a certain patient group, these are the types of consultants that we would need. This is the type of equipment that we would need. Uh, and But it must be within the lens of the island community and within uh, the lens of AHS as a whole. Got it. I think, I, I think that's a great answer. I, 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 as, as a member of the Alameda Hospital medical staff, I, I have an opinion on that version as well. So I think uh, us, the med staff having dialogues about what they would want is a great starter to get to to reduce that energy of activation because these are big dialogues and uh, seven years uh, is not that far away <laughs> and so I think it's important that we put this back on the strategic uh, point of view discussion with regard to the system our partners at the healthcare district and the med staff I think these are important discussions which really need a lot of lead time yes I agree mm-hmm. um, trustees any further questions or comments? Trustee Banerjee? Yeah, I just wanted to say Dr. Joshi right on with that and and the stakeholders, the, the community as well, like the district, uh, healthcare district, the HS, the city, county, and the residents of the island um, as well. We've talked about like having this kind of stakeholder engagement for years now when the first time when it was on the um you know the kitchen and the morgue and those were the, the seismic activity for those were on the line but uh, this uh, veto of this legislation and now um, staring at this um in the eye um we really need to um prioritize that great uh, with that, I don't see any other hands up. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Good evening, Dr. Afzali. Hi, good evening all. Um, I will have a relatively short report tonight. The San Leandro Leadership Committee meets in less than one week. Um, our top uh, topics uh, to be discussed are uh, post-anesthesia workflow for patients to improve uh, safety and quality, as well as disposition of the patients. Uh, make them a little less uh, uh, ambiguous and uh, define a clear workflow for where to put patients. Um, and then uh, the second big topic that will be discussed offline from the committee, uh, but relating to the committee, is the uh, is the new new year as well as uh, the uh, uh, sort of role and uh, definition of the San Leandro Leadership Committee as it kicks into the uh, strategic plan as well as uh, AHS's uh, its pillars. Uh, I think it's a good time for us to have this discussion, given that we have new uh, leadership within administration with uh, with Chris Adams, uh, as well as new leadership in the in the ED uh, with the interim uh, director Nancy Hurtline, and uh, anticipating new uh, ACMO as well. Uh, this is a good time to have these discussions and and define the role of standing and leadership, which I think has been evolving. Uh, since its inception some years ago. 
the uh, one uh, item of concern that has surfaced over the past month that uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get uh, a better handle on is uh, is imaging again. Uh, the San Leandro CT scanner has been uh, down quite a bit. The uh, last time it was down for about 36 hours or so, uh, put in significant impact, and that compounded with EMS delays and transport times uh, for significant uh, hamper on, in the ED. Um, and so can't wait for the new CT scanner to be up and running uh, sometime spring of next year. But in the in the interim, uh, this is something that we I think need to track more closely and in hopes of avoiding. Uh, I will mention there, you know, Troy and, and team have been uh, attempting to get uh, a handle on on the contractor uh, regarding the uh, downtime of the of the imaging and trying to get it to new trailer, which is uh, very difficult to find, but nonetheless something that needs to be tracked um, closely. Um, and so in uh, November, I'll have more updates for you on that, as well as the uh, mitigation plan. Um, that's all the updates I have for you tonight. Any questions would be welcome. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Vzali? Dr. Vzali, talk to me about uh, what, what's, the, what's the trend line on the data of the CT scanner being down month after month? Is it, has it been down more month after month in terms of absolute time? It, it has been this this month uh, in particular. Uh, it was probably the worst I've seen. Um, the data. What, I, yeah. Yeah. What's the quant on that? Uh, I will have that for you in November. Okay. So it's getting uh, the data shows it's getting worse month after month. The frequency uh, as well as the length of time. I think it's okay. getting worse. Got it. Mark, this is Kinkini. Can you remind us? You had given an update on like what uh, with the where we were with that, and I, I can you Mark Mark Fradsky, I was asking, um, do, would you be able to like I'm? Um, I know you had mentioned where we were with the you know what the process with the what with that was um, quotes um, identification, but I wasn't like. Could you refresh that, please? Yes, thank you, um, Trustee ben Banerjee. Um, so I don't, you know, I knew what the data was to to Dr. Bouquet's uh, point um, until this month. It went down again, and my hunch is it's gone to. And I agree with Dr. Efzali that it's probably gone down more than we would like it to. You know, one time down is too much, frankly. Yeah. So. Um, Troy, the new CT scanner, the completion date for that is June 31st of next year. So we've got about nine months here. Um, the hope, the hope, and Troy's researching this right now, is we're considering a different um, company for the current CT portable scanner. Um, we're researching that now. Um, we will pull the trigger on that um, if we can find someone because what we'd like to do is consider keeping a backup CT slash PET scanner um, as the new CT scanner is completed. So we've got, it's gonna be much better in the future, but we need to do as much as we can to try to mitigate things in the near future. Um, the CT scanner that 
we have on the platform right now, um, the portable one is an old, I think it's a 16 slice. That's how old it is. And it's prone to more breakdown. And Alliance, the imaging company, doesn't have another one for us, um, a different one to replace it. So we're looking. We're going to go out and search to see if, if we can find another company, unless they can step up somehow. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Fratsky. Looking around for other comments, questions. Dr. Zali, thank you for your presentation for us this evening. All right, um, next uh, I'm gonna introduce uh, Dr. Lana Lee. Uh, I think many of us know her, but uh, uh, this is a preview of her uh, soon to be official job as the new chief of staff come January. So she's currently the, vice, the new vice chief of staff uh, she's a longstanding uh, uh, OBGYN doctor with us. She's been here for many years, so she knows the system. Uh, welcome, Dr. Lee, for your preview for us. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet. I was going to introduce myself, but thank you for that awesome introduction. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, committee, for having me tonight. I am uh, presenting in place of Dr. Irina Williams, the Alameda Health System Medical Executive Committee report. Um, so I'm going to present according to our pillars for community, the medical staff justice, equity, diverse, uh, diversity, and inclusion committee, along with the AHS medical executive committee, recommended to the Alameda Health System adopt a policy eliminating any existing or future race-based clinical calculators. This is a letter that was sent um, to the HETI steering committee. In terms of quality, our simulation center has increased the number of in-person simulation-based events. Um, multiple department residency programs, including the emergency department, internal medicine, dental, and the obstetrics department have uh, participated and uh, start, restarted these events. In addition, the surgery residency training program is also planning to do monthly trainings on high-risk and low-occurrence events. Certification programs such as the Trauma Nurse Corps course, as well as the Advanced Trauma Life Support um, programs also use this simulation center for training. For staff and patient experience, Dr. Tornabene presented a plan for service line development. She, in collaboration with Dr. Achilles Warren and Dr. Portia Mack, um, are developing a, this line to improve patient experience as they traverse the different services, for example, inpatient and outpatient services that are offered by a single department or specialty. They will target departments that have high patient volume as well as high patient complexity, such as patients, such as departments that require, uh, such as departments that have a large number of patients needing comprehensive care coordination. Um, in addition, there are several search committees for department chairs ongoing. Uh, East Bay Medical Group was present to outline for us the process and overall structure for this. Uh, we also discussed the strengths and opportunities from our recently closed chair searches. We also heard from several departments, including obstetrics and gynecology, emergency department and orthopedic surgery their chairs were present to give us department reports outlining some of the department's achievements and ongoing projects. For instance, the Department of OBGYN uh, was awarded, or our Family Birthing Center was awarded the 2022 CMQCC 
NTSV award. This award is uh, for the decreasing the number of first birth cesarean deliveries. And we have been um, consistently below the healthy people target of 23.6% um, for several years now. In the emergency department, they are working on a system integration project to expand point of care ultrasound system-wide um, while also developing credentialing and billing for this service. And the orthopedic department is currently recruiting three uh, employed physicians for open positions. Um, they are working with a all-time low number of staff physicians who are remarkably able to cover the three uh, hospitals within our system. And that is my report. And thank you for listening. And I will answer any questions. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Lee? Trustee Banner. Welcome, Dr. Lee. Yes, we'll be hearing more from you for a while. So welcome. Good job. Uh, uh, bring your input and feedback to us. Uh, as I say, all feedback's a gift, so tell us what you need to tell us. Great job, Dr. Lee. Thanks. Um, with that, we're gonna close out item C, and uh, we're a little bit ahead of time, which is great for me because it gives us space to hear from some great stuff. So uh, our, our next item is item D. It's our, it's our standard patient safety, regulatory affairs, and quality TNM dashboard. Boy, there's a lot of great stuff there that's going to be uh, led by Ms. Torres, our VP Quality. How, not however, and there, there, there is a, a, a kind of a nice, a really nice, a nicely arranged uh, report on readmissions from Dr. Evan Ruhosa, who is, of course, an ED physician in, a, in our group, and uh, the, as well as the medical director of the acute care health outcomes. So Ms. Torres, I, since we have a little bit of space, do you think you can run us through this whole book of business in about 30 minutes, including Dr. Rujosa's uh, presentation? Yes. Uh, and this one's a big one for us because it's our first shot at the new dashboard, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, ma'am. All right. I will share my screen. Yours. Okay, thank you. Okay. So I will leave the True North metric piece for the end because then Dr. Rusoha will tack on and do the equity drill down. So we're gonna start with patient safety. Um, this is our harm rate by fiscal year. And you can see for this fiscal year, our rate is 3.43%. Uh, um, we're only three months into the year. So hopefully, you know, we will hope to see that come down further. Our target is 3%, but you can see how we uh, performed the last few years. Um, this is the harm rate by month. And again, here is the September, um, again at 3.4, a little lower than the previous month. We did have a total of 14 harms um, for the month of September, 12 of which were E category, which essentially is a temporary harm. So, um, Anna, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yes. Apologies, uh, and, and trustees can of course come. Can you tell, remind us how we arrived at a 3% harm rate target? Yes, because we looked at the previous year. So the previous year we ended up at 3.26%. Okay. And our goal is to get better every year. Okay. Uh, so we didn't want to leave it at 3.26. We had to decrease it. So that's how we arrived at a 3%. Okay. 
Okay. Um, there really aren't external benchmarks for this. This, this comes off of uh, our safety alert data. Okay. Um, but our goal is to improve so we keep tightening. If we if we hit the three percent this year, then next year will be two and a half percent. Okay. So. Okay. So, and if anyone has any question, just feel free to to stop me. Otherwise, I'll keep talking. Um, so I wanted to put this slide in here just because I think every month we talk about harm reduction and what we're doing to re reduce harm. But I think my big question would be, well, how are you going to reduce harm? So there's three things that I think we're doing uh, maybe a bit differently starting this fiscal year. One is we have the no True North metric dashboard, which you'll see shortly. And on that no uh, dashboard, you'll see that harm is called out separately. So this time we'll start calling out how much harm we've we've uh, caused rather than just using a rate. There is also the no MOR process, which I think has been shared with the board before, but briefly what this is, um, the uh, quality dashboard goes to each of the CAO, uh, each of the CAOs, and they have monthly meetings where they're reviewing quality um, patient injuries, projects at the hospitals, and they're also reviewing their finances. But it's a great opportunity for each of the CAOs and nursing and other staff to get together and talk about what the metrics look like and develop action plans. And the following month, they look to see where they are performing with the action plans. So there have been two MORs um, so far, and they're coming up with great action plans. So they're really addressing what the issues are. Um, and then the, the, the third thing is to reduce harm across the board. Um, we are partnering with Beta Healthcare, and that is the conference that, that uh, Trustee Banerjee was referring to earlier today, uh, earlier this meeting. They have two programs. One is the Quest for Zero, um, which is essentially excellence in the ED and in the OB, where they start off uh, by doing an assessment and trying to close the gaps and then develop targeted strategies. So, for instance, for ED, they, we would be expected to develop uh, a sepsis program, or there's about 10 different programs that we can choose. Um, and depending on our performance, we can get awards. And at our next meeting, we'll talk about the numerous awards that the Alameda Health System won. Um, but that's one way we're targeting across the board harm reduction. And then the other is through the HEART program, which is a general approach to reducing harm. We will do a presentation on this at the January meeting because we are uh, actually implementing some of these programs. Just Culture is part of the HEART program, uh, which we provide updates almost every month. The, today, I don't have an update. Um, under Just Culture because there haven't been much changes, but we will talk about that uh, next month. And there are a few other programs that we're working on. So we expect to have some of that implemented close to the January date. So we'll do a more targeted presentation. But I just wanted to give an overview that although we're talking about reducing harm, we are actually trying to do it. It's not just a, a wish. Ms. Torres, can you remind me what the acronym MOR means? Monthly operating report. Got it. Okay. So these are the risk events by month. These are the safety alerts. We did have a drop in, in September, which we don't want to see. We want to see these continue to go up. We don't have a good reason for why we saw the drop in September. Um, 
So we, you know, with the changes we've made, we actually expected to see that continue to increase. So we'll see how we perform for October. Then this is the volume of patient relations events by month. Um, here, we do wanna see a drop. And we had 54 for the month of September. These would include both grievances and complaints and the vast majority of these are grievances. And I think, just give me a second, I'll tell you. Um, most of them are in, in quality of care, uh, access and staff professionalism. That's where we're getting the grievances for. Okay, in terms of regulatory affairs, um, we had one self-reported event, uh, but we're, there were no complaints and no Sentinel events for this month. Recent and upcoming surveys, we've talked about these already. We're still awaiting our EMTALA survey, which will be unannounced and we're still um, waiting for a Joint Commission survey, which would, should occur by uh, February, 2023. So we still have a few months. And these are some of the activities that the uh, regulatory department um, is working on. This is some, not all, uh, but with the EMTALA, there is an active EMTALA work group um, where they are act, um, monitoring the action plans and doing case reviews. Um, and, and they've got some metrics where they're monitoring to make sure that the uh, action plan that was sent into CMS is effective. Um, as far as joint commission readiness, we did have a, a site visit from the our consultant with JCR early in September. And I think Nilda presented those findings last month. So we're working with ELT members to make sure we mitigate those findings. There's a lot of education. Um, we're doing that in two forms. The regulatory affairs department is presenting, um, I forgot what they call them, but they, there's a title for their education. Um, and they're presenting on information that's relevant to our medical center. So issues uh, with sterilization or anything that we've seen that is problematic, um, they're turning into education and they're doing that uh, system-wide. In addition to that, we have the breakfast briefings, which are put on by the Joint Commission, and those are more generalized education. Uh, but between the two, we think we've got the education um, to our staff and our management covered. Oops. Um, increased rounding and tracers. Um, many of the tracers, what they're doing are targeted tracers, looking at high risk areas to make sure we can close the gaps there. Um, and looking at document readiness, because we do know what the Joint Commission is gonna look for when they walk through the doors. There's a set uh, list of documents that they're going to request. So our regulatory readiness has those documents pulled out in a binder, but just making sure that they stay current and, and relevant. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about the true, method, true metrics report and then I'll hand it over to Dr. Rusona. So this is the new report. Um, Our first shot at it. This is, yes. Um, uh, I think this is something to be really proud of. Dr. Gupta, as you recall, presented here several times. Um, she did great work leading the team. Um, and Annette Johnson, our director of uh, of analytics and performance improvement did a great job of making that vision come to life. So this, this is the actual um, dashboard. So the differences here, so we'll just point out a few of the things. First of all, it's, it's, it's read all the way down because it is our first month. So this is the data for uh, July. 
which was the beginning of the fiscal year. So the July data is gonna match the year today. Um, and if you recall, we did tighten all of those targets, so we would not have been expected to reach goal this first month. So here's the first change with the harm where we can see the number of harms. Um, we had 784 uh, for fiscal year 22, and our goal for fiscal year 23 is uh, 705 or below that. So we did make a change, well, which I'll, actually, let me just show it now. As as, how, did, how did we pick that new target? Uh, just 10% reduction from okay. the previous. Got it. So there's been a lot of discussion at the MORs about how can we say that it's okay to have 700 harms, for instance. So we made a change and I just want to show it, um, which I thought was a great change, which came from Mark Fretsky. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> so... Um, we don't necessarily want to say that it's okay to have 77 harms using this, this dashboard, but we have to recognize that coming from 86, they're not going to get to zero in one year. So how to communicate that? So we're saying um, we would expect to see less than 77 harms, and we have a little asterisk there with at the bottom. It says we're on a quest for zero harms. So we're working towards this while recognizing that we can't go in one year from whatever number to zero because the harms are really high. Um, and that came out of one of the MORs. So coming back to this one and we'll see, oh, let me just go back, sorry for the back and forth. Here, I just wanna point out what the different harms that roll up to the System True North dashboard. So we have bloodstream infections, uh, urinary catheter UTIs, and these are considered hospital-acquired infections. So these are MRSA bloodstream infections, C. difficile infections, uh, surgical site infections, patient falls, and hospital-acquired pressure ulcers. So these are all harms that are occurring at a hospital, and they're considered preventable. There's a lot of evidence out there that if implemented, has been shown that many hospitals can prevent these infections. Okay, so what, okay, hand washing compliance is also no. Um, and there's a big change that's occurring here. So this 66% really represents some of the monitoring that's been done by nursing and infection prevention. Part of what's getting rolled out here is that there will be a module so that um, we'd like people to review the module and then help to, um, audit hand washing so that everyone's doing it the same and we can ha we, we want to have good data on hand washing. And that's going to roll out, I think, um, beginning of November, so sometime next week. Um, what else can I point out here? So these two metrics are no continuously assigned patients seeing in primary care in the last two years and the total number of patients on specialty backlog readmissions is a holdover, and then we've got the adult health maintenance update, ED wait times, and we did change the patient experience. Ms. Torres, so, is ED wait time a summary number for all three hospitals, or is yes. it Highland? Okay, it's a summary. It's all three hospitals, with Highland having a lot higher length of stay. And yes. it weighted by volume, probably? Yes. Okay. 
So again, not really much to say because it's our first month. Um, but I did want to show, these are the definitions, but I did want to show um, a little more on the cascade because this really gives each of the hospitals the information they need to, to work on these metrics. And, and again, this is only the quality portion. They're looking at other items as well. So we talked about these harms um, and then we can look at what they're looking at in terms of patient experience, which is nursing communication, which is one of the ones that's strongly associated with the overall uh, patient experience, doctor communication, uh, likelihood of recommending, um, and then ambulatory surgery, likelihood of recommending and emergency department. Um, so each of the hospitals does get this, their own data. For John George, it's a little different because some of those metrics don't apply to them. So they, on the other hand, are looking at a lot of the safety metrics, which are the assaults. Any questions? Ms. Torres, I have a question which came up in a, in a department meeting I was at earlier today. It, it, it sounds like many of our people want access to these data. Um, can you talk to me about the, the if you will, uh, the, the plan to, to normalize this in our organization, how, our, how the average employee can find these data? And I love that people are interested that the question, the question in itself was a great question. How do I find these data? So can you can you talk to us about how that might be made available to our staff yes. and employees? So we're going to be putting it on the intranet. Um, and Dr. Gupta did, did remind us of that. So we, we expect to have that up in the next couple of weeks. They'll be on the intranet. We haven't determined where, but hopefully on the landing page so that everyone can see it. Um, the reports also go out to all of the CAOs. Um, we've requested to present it, and, and Mark, oh, I see Mark, you have your hand up. Uh, we requested to present it at the department leadership monthly. Um, but yeah, we need to just get this out everywhere and make sure everyone knows it, because if we have everyone moving together, we're, we're really going to make strides. Mr. Frasky, sir. Um, great question. Um, at our monthly operating reviews, which we've just started, um, we've talked quite a bit about how do we cascade information to our staff. And we're in the process of developing methodologies across the system to be able to do that because it isn't just this True North Metric scorecard. We also want to be able to cascade our financials at each, or, at each entity as well as our employee injuries at each entity. So we're on top of all of these areas um, best we can be. So um, I guess, Dr. Bouquet, more in the future about how we're going to do that. One, it, it might be with our visibility boards that are in, you know, different areas. It could be at unit-based councils, staff meetings. And we also want to be able to share this with our union partners. Um, so, you know, we, we, we're thinking around that very question right now. Thank you, sir. Dr. Tornabene. I think also I would consider as was done today, the uh, sharing in the physician department meetings as well. Of course, it's discussed at the Medical Executive Committee, the Quality Safety Council, but you know, making sure it gets out through um, physician leadership as well to the different departments. And then second from that point, I actually had a question for um, our board here, which is that you know we have the high level quality dashboard, but then we have the cascades. Um, would the 
would our quality council of the board be interested in, in having the cascades in the packet as well as the high level? I'm gonna open this up to trustee Banerjee first then trustee Jensen. Yeah, I mean, any, uh, you know, as board members, we have the obligation to be good stewards and yet we see a slice of the organization. And so it's, uh, um, I mean, I'm always in for extra level of detail and granularity and seeing some of the cascading because, you know, there's only that many that made it over here. And there are so many others that I would love to know about. Like, uh, so, but I think it, this would be something that could be a recommendation could be made from us or it could be brought to the full board. I'll defer to the our um, uh, other members of the committee, but also to the chair. Trustee Jensen, your comments on this? Well, uh, it, it provides data, you know, as we learned in when we looked at the article this earlier in the meeting, um, is this the data we want? That's the question. Yeah. I think this is a great dialogue. Thank you for asking the question, Dr. Pornabene. I think uh, I, I, in philosophy, I agree with Trustee Banerjee, I think, we, uh, and Trustee Jensen, that, 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 that we have accountability to the data and seeing it, and then managing uh, what I sometimes call the tyranny of numbers, right? All this data comes out, we, it's too much. So maybe we can discuss a cadence that, you know, we have 11 TNM dashboard items. Maybe mm -hmm. we, can, we can have a cascade for three of them per month or something, just available as for read only in the packet. And maybe this is generative for questions. You know, Trustee Banerjee sees some, oh, that's a great one on the TNM, John George. It could be generative questions. So um, uh, how about um, to put it back onto the quality committee, I'll, I'll work with uh, trustees uh, uh, Banerjee, Jensen and Esteen to sort of give a recommendation as to so as to cadence, because this could just be a, a tidal wave of data, which would then overwhelm us. Is, is that acceptable, Dr. Tornabene? Thank you, that would be fantastic. Um, my other comment is that um, it's brave organizations which put their data out. And uh, uh, I think that's what we're trying to be. And uh, boy, it doesn't look good to put a lot of red out, but it's pretty gutsy to do it. And it holds ourselves all accountable to it. And I'll remind us about our strategic plan. The inner ring, uh, the inner principles are accountability, data, and trust. So, uh, you know, us trusting the data, being accountable to ourselves, and putting that data out. So I think on principle, I think uh, if, if we put this out on view for, for anyone, if someone's interested in this, good for them and good for us, uh, rather than people not caring. So uh, however we find visibility, uh, Mr. Fratsky, Dr. Tornabene, I think, uh, I think, and Ms. Torres, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I'd say the same, like transparency is like such a crucial thing to build trust as well. So both internally within ours. So, you know, we can't solve the problems we don't see. And right. so like, this is a good way to celebrate our wins. We have so many things we have to be proud of too but to also to see like where our pain points are. Yes, ma'am. All right, Ms. Torres. Thank you. So that's it for me. I'll turn it over to Dr. Rusoha, who's going to do the readmission equity drill down. And I'll stop sharing.
Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Good evening, Dr. Rousseau. Um, so I will assume everyone can see my screen. Good to go. Excellent. So I'm Evan Rousseau. I'm the medical director of acute care health outcomes. I'm also an ER doctor. Um, and as a data scientist, there's few things that give me greater joy than talking about organizational data. So um, I'm going to do that today. Uh, before I get started, I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Tornabene, who's really been, um, you know, the driver of a lot of this work and really thinking about how to use this type of analysis to move a lot of our work forward. So here's my overview. So uh, just a quick introduction to our data, some of the key takeaways, and then the next steps. So in brief, this is data over a five-year, almost five-year period from 2016 to uh, 2021. It uses data from MIDAS. As many of you remember, we had an electronic medical record changeover. So this is the data that we use. And it's inpatient data over about 117,000 visits um, with really no exclusion criteria. It includes Alameda Highland, St. Leandro, and John George. And typically when I do this talk, I leave the slides up for comment, but in the interest of time, I'm gonna narrate as I go through. Folks can stop me to ask questions as we go or at the end. And I'll just ask that you go off of mute since I'll be looking at the slides to ask questions. So from a facility perspective, as many of you know, uh, about half of our utilization is at Highland. Um, and actually before I start, let me orient you to these tables because as, um, uh, Trustee Bouquet mentioned, uh, there can be issues with a tidal wave of data, and this is certainly one of those presentations. So on the left is going to be our admissions, typically. On the right will be readmissions. And so you're looking at all four of our hospitals in this slide. You're going to see the number of visits, the percentage of the total, same on this side, and then percentage of readmissions, um, which is my topic. My objective is to give you some context for the system as a whole, and so you'll often see some general contextual data as well on the slides. Um, okay, getting back to the the content. So, um, sorry, doctor. It, it, so yes. the but we're just talking about with regard to the readmissions that these are just readmissions for. Um, it, we don't have the data about where if they're being readmitted to the same site, or is that is that implicit? Good question. So this counts if a patient comes to Highland and then is readmitted within 30 days to Highland, it counts that. If they come to Highland and they're readmitted within 30 days to St. Leandro, it also counts that. It, this data over here doesn't um, delineate what direction that readmission was. I think it only captures that second admission location. Thank you. Good question. In terms of readmissions, um, about half of our readmissions occur at Highland um, and uh, with another 50% pretty evenly distributed across the other sites, at least relative to their volume. In terms of age, the largest group of uh, patients that are readmitted are in this 50 to 69 year old age group. So you're looking at about a third of patients are admitted in that group but about 40% of our readmissions are within that age group. Gender, and as you will notice, and I'll talk about this more at the end, there's a lot of uh, categories within social determinants that are missing. 
um, and not covered. This is a great example. So our, in terms of gender, admissions and readmissions are somewhat similar, slightly favoring um, men. There's some demographic um, information about uh, men's health in most countries that suggests that men are less healthy as, as we age. And so um, this is maybe not surprising. Here's our race data. There are many caveats to this. Uh, this is, and we as an organization certainly have different breakdowns, but let me just run you through what we have here. So uh, on the left, five subcategories, which certainly could be diced differently. First column is Alameda County. Second is emergency department in encounters. Third is admissions. And then fourth is readmissions. So what I think I wanna draw our attention to is we are a uh, majority minority serving institution, which I think anyone who really works in our our acute care settings, anyone who works in our hospital system um, probably recognizes. Uh, but that is you know, quite different from what our county's population is, even though that probably historically has not been true. Our admissions and readmission rates are also different um, by race. And there's a lot of things that we can unpack around why that could be true. Um, I'll just pause for questions. And then I also wanna point out on this slide, if for folks who are interested in my references, in lieu of a lengthy URL, I'm using QR code, so you can just look right away. Any questions on this slide? Great. From a linguistic perspective, um, English is our primary language, and there's a high percentage of folks um, who are readmitted who speak English. Um, interestingly, if you look at this slide and then you look back at this slide, the and you think about our population as a whole, I think that there's a lot of folks who are likely reporting English um, as a language, but may prefer a different language or may speak a different language at home. Um, the data does not elucidate that uh, very well. Zip code for this, uh, I just wanted to emphasize the uh, historical, and so much of this is historical, but I think that this aspect of the people that we serve is really well uh, elucidated by maps. In this map, this is a map of redlining, which is, um, for many of you, as, as many of you know, it's essentially the laws that um, dictated where people of which race could live, and it was everything from what neighborhood, you could, what neighborhood you could live in, to uh, how your housing was financed, um, a variety of other things. We, perhaps not surprisingly, serve populations who were historically redlined. Um, and so if you look at our largest uh, group of patients that we serve, so 94601, which is essentially um, Fruitvale redlined, uh, 94501, which is Alameda Island, and these demographics may have shifted since then, um, also redlined, 94621, and these are also our biggest readmission groups, also redlined, and the list goes on. Certainly some communities, Emeryville um, up here to the, the north have transitioned, but the population we serve, as many of you also know, uh, is this population who's been historically um, discriminated against. I wanna briefly talk about diagnosis. This diagnosis 
um, data is very interesting, I think, in a variety of ways. So I want to explain how I got to this data first. So in lieu of presenting extremely specific diagnoses, I use the ICD-10 classification, which uses diagnosis, block, and then chapter. They're in, in decreasing order of specificity. So what I've used is block. So these are things that a common person might say, oh, I understand what this diagnosis is instead of a specific diagnosis that's particular perhaps for our field. So what we're seeing here are those blocks. And this is again, over five years, um, no exclusions. So our number one diagnosis and our highest readmission diagnosis is schizophrenia. After that, other bacterial diseases, this is primarily driven by sepsis, um, birth, uh, this mood and affective disorder, hypertensive disease. These are the things that are really uh, driving a lot of our admissions. And if you look at the readmissions data, that's the same. One thing that I wanna particularly point out because that'll be a focus later is mental and behavioral dis disorder due to psychoactive substance abuse, which is really alcohol and opiate use disorder. Um, and for many of us who work in these acute care settings, we see this all the time. Um, to further emphasize this, I took a look at the data. Instead of looking at what is the primary diagnosis, I looked at all diagnoses. So you could call these comorbidities, for example. So I saw it, of the 25 possible diagnoses that are captured within the um, electronic medical record, what are the most common? And here's the list. So, so I'm sorry, yes, doctor. Please. Is that the um, that list at the top of the list is psychosocial and schizophrenic um, disorders? That's the list, the highest condition, the most prevalent condition for admission. Is that right? That's correct. Thanks. So for admissions, um, on the again on the left. Uh, these are the percentage, again, this percent of total is not going to add up. These are the percentage of patients who are admitted who have this diagnosis somewhere in their 25 diagnoses. So hypertension is not surprisingly high, metabolic disorders. So this is, these are things like hyperkalemia, which is for all of our dialysis patients, uh, something that's ever present. Um, but so we, there's some surprise, diabetes, renal failure. There's some surprises in here, at least for me. So uh, again, this uh, mental and behavioral disorders due to psychoactive substance abuse is a large, large, large comorbidity. So that's a third of our patients who are admitted and it's 41% of our patients who are readmitted. When you look at, and this data is not described here, but it's in a separate analysis. When you look at our high utilizers, this is the number one cause of readmissions in that, in that group. Um, it's something like 50%. So an enormous contributor to our utilization. I wanna jump to our key takeaways next. Um, so uh, half of our readmissions are outside of Highland. I think a lot of our resources are focused there. Half of readmissions are elsewhere. 40% are in this 50 to 69 um, age group. Our uh, African-American and Latinx patients are a third of the population in Alameda County, but two-thirds of our patients. Uh, a quarter of our patients prefer a language other than English, and that's probably underreported. We're still um, serving some of the county's most disenfranchised patients, which I think is why many of us uh, work here and um, continues to be true. 
psychiatric disease and sepsis are huge drivers of readmission. Um, hypertension, metabolic diseases, and substance use are key comorbidities. And then um, all of the social determinants of health that, I, that are not in this presentation are things which are poorly captured um, in our current data. So we can't even describe, for example, using our database, homelessness, which is obviously uh, contributing to uh, many of the things that I, that I discussed. There are a lot of next steps and I really don't wanna steal the thunder from the many folks throughout the health system who are working hard on this every day. Um, there uh, is a readmissions working group which is being revitalized. They bridge services around um, alcohol and opiate use disorder uh, are just doing so much incredible frontline um, collaborative work with the community. Uh, improved outpatient care management services. Um, and again, same type of vibes there back to basics for discharge planning, and then a lot of work that's happening around capturing this data so we can work with it. Um, I wanna leave it on down to questions. And then I also wanna emphasize some of these uh, literature pieces, which uh, some of them are quite dense, um, a thesis, but they're incredibly informative and shape uh, so much of the stories of the patients that we treat in our hospital and the circumstances which have led them to our doors in many cases. I'll conclude there. Thank you for that great report, Dr. Soha. That was a, a geek's paradise. Great stuff. Love that stuff. I'll open this up to uh, trustees Banerjee and Jensen. Any questions or commentary uh, on this? I do. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Russo, and it's so nice to have a face to the name. We've, uh, you know, heard of you and the combination of um, skill sets that we have is so unique and so necessary for us. So thank you for choosing AHS as your place. So, um, so um, that th those uh, findings were really salient, and I think what I took away is that um, we don't always. Um, probably compute in our heads, at least from me, that about 44% of the admissions are in San Francisco, uh, San um, Leandro Hospital, Alameda Hospital, and John George. So they form about like 42, 45% of the admissions and about 48% of the readmissions. So that's, that's um, a lot. And also the fact that so many of the general admissions seem to have like mental health. We see more and more of diagnoses where the principal diagnoses might be something else in the acute, in our acute care system in Highland or, but there the comorbidity also includes um, mental um, health issues. And then in John George, we see folks who are presenting pro probably primary diagnosis of a mental health, but with increasingly more comorbidity. So that is, do we, um, so yeah, looking forward very much to have the kind of granularity of data and to see like expanded gender, uh, um, um, you know, uh, gender sexual orientation data as well over there and all the other determinants of health. But 
Um, <clears throat> do you see correlation with length of stay? I know that we usually have a longer length of stay in Highland for our Highland patients than we have in others. And so like, I wonder if we dig down, do some of the readmissions also happen because the length of stay sometimes in some of the other hospitals are so much shorter for similar patients? Uh, thanks, Trustee Banerjee, and that's a great question. You know, if this analysis, if this were an academic paper with five tables, this would be table point one of this analysis. And so I, I, I don't know. I think that that's a great thing that we could look at with the data. Um, this is really a description of the data. It really isn't even the, the, the real analysis yet, but we need more of those types of questions to understand um, what is actually happening to our patients and which patients it's happening to. Thank you. Like, yes, this would be just one of so many possible, but uh, great uh, analysis uh, and, you know, just, just um, assessment of the data. Thank you. Trustee Jensen, any comments? Yeah, I am. Um... It was an excellent report, and it, it obviously it, it backs up and supports many of the um, things that that the clinicians that you and and our quality team, et cetera, and our transfer team have been working on. I I look at it and I see the um, community programs, the the positive effects that our community programs can have on readmissions, and I am specifically talking about the community paramedic program, which is no longer um, happening in Alameda. But those, as I look at the diagnoses of readmissions, um, the mental health disorders, bacterial diseases, and um, diabetes, the uh, uh, some metabolic disorders, et cetera. And I see and I understand how the community paramedics were responding and supporting discharges to, to meet their to get their meds, to comply with physician orders, and to avoid readmissions. I think that um, I also look at in Alameda the the care program, community assessment and response team. I think it's called, um, and that program is going out and and supporting mental health persons with mental health disorders on the street to avoid to provide referrals and avoid at the first admission. And of course that would mean a readmission in many cases. So I, I look at this and I can see how community support programs outside of Highland can be helpful in reducing readmissions. And I also, I, I appreciate this as a trustee because of course readmissions is what is looked at by our regulators. That's the first one of the first things they're looking at. And, and if we can get a handle on it and identify the, our, the needs of our patients, the needs of our community and, and respond to avoid readmissions, that, that would mean keeping keeping our discharges healthier, keeping the people who come to our sites and who are discharged from acute care healthy, healthier. So um, very, very much appreciative and I'll look forward to um, being a public community member looking for the updated report. Thank you, Dr. Richard. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to add one more thing. Go for it. And that is that so many of um, the really impactful things we do tend to be pilots and then they dry up after some time. So, so that is a real pity. And that also is a testament to like where we put our resources, whether it's out in the community-based 
things are also some of the AHS ones things. So like looking forward to like through this, having many more like community health workers and advocates and other kind of support systems that allow and support um, the dignity and the health of our patients like when they leave our system and they're still within our care. And um, one more thing, I also noted kind of interesting to me that we are the trauma center, but traumas are not either admissions or readmissions. That's must be pretty far down on the list. So um, obviously we're doing something right there. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll close this section by saying this was a great entree into this new era of what we're trying to do with vis-a-vis -vis our True North metric dashboard. Uh, the, the trustees have been asking uh, in concert with our administrative partners about how we're going to dig into questions and concerns around equity. And we're now seeing racial profiles on one of our items, which is readmissions. So Dr. Tornabene, great pick. This is a great way for us to envision the equity piece of each of those True North veterans. And what I'd say for Dr. Rusohai, I'd say I, I, being a uh, a pseudo uh, data geek, not as good as you, of course, is that, you know, they say that great data doesn't necessarily give great answers, but they beget great questions. Uh, and, and right now, automatically a question I have, how come African-Americans and Hispanics are admitted at a proportionally lower rate than their Caucasian and Asian colleagues who are admitted at a higher rate than their proportion of admission to the ED? So a question we could have never previously had. So I think uh, this is a, uh, uh, Wow, what a, what a powerful data set. And I hope we can recapitulate this amongst other, other segments of our organization. I'll be looking to Dr. Tornabene and Dr. Mack and saying, hey, can we do this uh, for our, can we have a parallel presentation for our non-acute, for our ambulatory patients? Because this is a great entree into all these discussions we'll be having. Dr. Rousseau, are we, are we entering as a social determinant of health data well in this organization? Are we entering it well? Yeah, are we, are we capturing that data well? No, so yeah. uh, for example, I looked at the Z codes for homelessness, um, which in primary research in the Highland ED showed about a third um, or higher percentage of our patients have uh, housing insecurity of some, of some type. Yeah. Within this data set, which again is about 120,000 people, only about 10,000 people, it might've even been less than that, had a code which was pertinent to housing instability. Yeah. So the amount is being significantly under underrepresented. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I think this is this is one of the prongs of the attack, which is, man, we got to keep gathering good data. And, uh, you know, there's an education piece and then, you know, the cultural piece about how we got it. So uh, really, really nice report. Um, trustees, I'll close it out. Any other, oh, sorry, there's Dr. Tornabeni. Yeah, just to, to add to Dr. Rusoha on the Z code um, piece, there was actually a project approved over the summer that will roll into our data governance committee okay. um, that's been led by Tangerine Brigham to really work on um, how we uh, get, start gathering this data reliably um, in our EHR. Uh, sorry, man, I, I got one more question and then I'll, I'll stop it. Uh, Dr. Rusoha, talk to me about how difficult the pre-September 28th, 2019 data was, the pre-EPIC era. Uh, going forward, this is gonna get easier, question mark? That is a good question. I took this all from MIDAS, which extracts from 
any of our uh, clinical databases. And so this data came in one file and each year was identical. The okay. challenge which we're seeing in other work is understanding the reliability and validity of some of the EPIC dashboards. Not to say that the data is being incorrectly um, shown, it's just that we don't, uh, we have issues as a new organization with a new EMR, making yeah. sure that we're all documenting, we're attributing, we're doing all this other work in a way that's reliable and valid so that when I see a patient and I do a procedure, it always goes to me. And some of that is just growing pains around data input. And that is critical to understanding those dashboards that come out. So I have no doubt that soon we will be using those regularly as clinicians at this level and, and elsewhere. But you know, we're going through the growing pains of understanding that, that data um, within Epic. Yes, sir. Thank you for this contribution. And we're doing so much don't we have like an equity analytics group or, or so that's working on that as well? Um, is it Dr. Swift? Did I hear something in Hedy about a, a data? Hi. Um, yes, yeah, so um, creating standard work for equity dashboards, equity analytics, um, and the, you know, everything from the terminology to the way the dashboards are formatted, um, training, all of that, that whole package was identified by the HETI committee in March as a 2022 objective. Um, now that it's in the strategic plan, uh, data as a value, it's given us a little bit more support. And today we um, kicked off our equity analytics work group that will be co-chaired by myself and um, Ana Torres. And we'll, after some time, I'll probably uh, give it to quality or another leader in the organization. And Evan, uh, Dr. Rizoha will be a critical, critical um, member of that team. We are totally depending on his wisdom and experience, both from his work nationally and internationally. I do whatever Dr. Swift says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, thank you, everybody. With that, we will close out item D. Uh, uh, what an engaging conversation. We're going to end the, the night with item E. Uh, this is, a, I, it must be a emergency medicine faculty night tonight because uh, we're, we're having two great presentations uh, back to back. This is a QI project report. We've heard from this, uh, from this group before and we're going to hear from them again. This is regards to the Bridge Clinic building system-wide integration of treatment for substance use disorders. This evening, we of course have Dr. Herring, who's our medical director for uh, Bridge and Substance Use support, uh, Disorder Treatment, as well as Bronze Courtney, who's the Executive Director for HIV Education and Prevention Program of Alameda County. So Dr. Herring, the floor is yours, hopefully around 22 minutes, if that can do it, sir. No problem. That Welcome. Um, all right. Um, can everyone see my screen okay? Good to go. Um, so this is just such a thrill to be here um, with all these um, incredible people doing this fantastic work. So I'm happy to share this little piece of it. The it'll it'll be just me tonight. Um, Bronze won't be able to make it. Um, so the the first message is is thank you. Um, you know this was a this is a pilot project that's that's not going to wither on the vine. Uh, the Board of Trustees gave clear support and guidance and insight, and the executive leadership team took that ball and ran with it. 
and has supported us to build an incredible team. It's, it's something that I know is unique. I know that this is a moment in my personal career and the career of many of us in the bridge that is probably likely never to occur again. It's this spirit of growth and enthusiasm and morale that is just um, really feeding on itself. So it means that when we look for partners and hire new folks, we're getting the best. We're getting really motivated, excited people that are coming to the table, whether it is, you know, Sunny Lai coming in to, from HIV um, and AIDS and saying like, I wanna create a one-stop shop where you get substance use disorder treatment, STI treatment, HIV, Hep C, we do it all together integrated. How do I make this happen? How do we scale it to the whole system? You know, that kind of energy, the volunteerism, the spirit is really what's happening right now in just so many different directions. Now, going back a year ago, we had that spirit, but it was built upon this incredibly <laughs> fragile footing of tenuous grants and people working like triple X. And now that's not true any longer. So we've just got this foundation um, that I'm really happy to, uh, to share with you tonight. The, the, the basic sort of going around the pillars, right, is in terms of, of sustainability for the bridge. We, we are now federally qualified. This is an enormous step. I think all of you understand the, what it means to become a federally qualified healthcare center. So the bridge itself um, has received federal, federal qualification and will be entering into the, the final laps in terms of rate sending and actually, actually, um, actually doing our work. The, we continue to receive interest from both national um, and regional grant givers. So the, the Public Health Institute has provided us with another grant to expand our work. The Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, which is, a, we are really happy um, to have received a five-year grant from them to specifically really look at our digital infrastructure, how to use or principles of social economics to make a very as seamless and frictionless a, um, a process as possible from the entry point through the emergency department or inpatient admission all the way into, into ambulatory care. They have a really large EPIC embedded team and that work is underway. We have received funding through the Prop 47 to deepen and extend our work with, with folks who are experiencing or have um, been justice involved um, in the uh, that is work that's really being uh, led in partnership with Bronze Courtney and HEPAC, which is one of our partnerships we really love. The National Institute of Health has re recently indicated there will be funding us for another trial, looking at how to really build in advanced psychiatric uh, support for our patients to identify you know, when and how do you do that in the most targeted and effective way. Um, and we uh, continue to have several um, trials funded by the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And in terms of the quality of our care, you know, so what happens at every, every visit, we've been able to recruit and hire an incredible practice manager, you know, a, a pedigreed, excellent person who really wanted to come to the bridge. They want to do a good job. And so their Hillary Katzen is sinking in um, and really putting us all um, developing an organizational structure um, to move things into the future. We recruited for a pharmacist and we got a pharmacist, you know, Lauren Roller, she's amazing. So now we have a, we have a clinical pharmacist working with our navigators and clinical team to, to make things happen. 
and our, our specialist team is growing um, in terms of just the number of physicians that are available and their niche specialties, whether it's HIV AIDS or hospitals medicine or ER medicine or primary care, really rounding it all out um, and continue to grow our uh, community health worker and navigator team. So it's, it's, it's coming together. The, in terms of community connections, the, this HEPPAC partnership is, is, I just wish I could convey how unique it is. Um, you know, talk about redlining, right? So HEPPAC, you know, as a harm reduction agency, we're literally was like banned from getting federal funding for quite a while. And now that's all been flipped over. You know, the Biden administration has put it number one on its list. So through decades of incredible work here in Alameda County, we have harm reductionists like Bronze Courtney and his colleagues who are both absolutely in the community, of the community, um, driven by it in an independent, a fiercely independent way. Also, they have the sort of just the boring bureaucratic skills to be able to write grants, attend meetings, do reports, all that stuff. So it's just a, a miracle. So, and we've just really leveraged that. So now we have a large and growing staff. They probably have about a million dollars in grants that we've basically run through them to provide services on site at Highland. So this means that there, we have intact contracts, BAAs, et cetera, so we can have sort of dyed in the wool harm reductionists, you know, often with the lived experience of use disorders who are on site fully badged and they're the face of the whole program. And not only are they the face of the program, but Bronze has, we've developed a, a leadership team for the Bridge Clinic. Um, and it's a multidisciplinary team. And we've invited the executive director of HEPAC to be on that team. So the actual governance of our strategic vision of how services are designed and executed and modified is informed by the community it serves in a really concrete way that's got teeth. Um, so it's something that we're really, really proud of. The Santa Rita Jail um, is, is, is partnership is unbelievable. So we have really merged these medical staffs so that in that when someone is at Santa Rita identified with opioid use disorder or started on buprenorphine or other MAT, they notify us. We develop a collaborative plan so that when that person gets discharged, they've got a prescription and an appointment waiting for them, like automatically, baseline. Um, so that's something we're really very proud of. Mark, we, we heard some comments around paramedicine. That's the Marco team. The Marco team is, is um, also working with us. They were on site, like, a ton, like 20 of them, like invaded the bridge clinic last week. We all met up and are really trying to partner to figure out how to push out and provide services as quickly to the, the time and place of kind of crisis and need as possible. So if they're out there, we don't need to wait. Let's get it done. Let's get the prescription made. Let's get the consult made um, uh, as soon as possible without any kind of delay. Mobile van, we're, the mobile van will be working at the syringe services program to, to again, sort of build this, like, how can we provide care in situ where, where the need is happening? And then our community hotline, which I'll talk a little bit more about, um, is is very is is awesome. It's basically a hotline that means that you call the number and you can get initiated on buprenorphine that same day, and not even that same day. Like to paint the picture picture of what it really looks like, it's four it's four screens with two harm reductionists, you know, just scrolling through text messages and with headphones and calls, and then a physician who's in the room. So if someone calls up and there's something that they can field easily, which 
you know, we encourage a sort of light, you know, dynamic relationship. So people will ask us about like, you know, how do I get a, you know, what do I do with my, how do I board my dog over the weekend? I've got to visit my daughter, this little stuff, no problem. We answer it. Or it might be like, Hey, I want to start buprenorphine. Can I talk to a doctor? And they'll literally pass the phone over to the doctor sitting right there. So you're able to get this quality of care that's, that's literally unheard of. I work with place peoples all over the United States. And that kind of integration where there's no, okay, great, you call the hotline. Now I'm going to refer you to another hotline that's going to have someone call you back. Like that's the standard of care. This is like literally integrated. Um, so what that means is it's fun. People feel it. They feel good care happening. You get a lot of positive feedback. People will be like, oh my God, I beat my head against the door of this other program for weeks and months. And it drove me crazy. And you guys are awesome. You just did the easy thing. You just met with me, helped me out. And I thank you. So that just brings a lot of, of fun. It's also really fun to have this integrated leadership team with really different perspectives. You know, in be totally frank, the biomedical medicine, biomedical uh, model of addiction treatment and harm reduction don't quite jive. There's really some very valid contradictions in, you know, living with that sort of contradiction ambiguity between behavioral health, psychosocial, bio, bioreductionist medicine, medical approaches and harm reduction. It's just a fun tension that's good and dynamic and keeps people interested. So we're, we're really um, uh, have a high morale. So when you're funding the bridge, to me, you, you're, you're funding integration um, in, in both vertical and horizontal. So I'll just walk through. So vertically, it means that we own our own hotline. We have an ED that's connected to that hotline. So if someone's like, oh my God, I feel like I'm gonna die. You know, I feel so bad. We aren't like, oh, I'm gonna call your prescription in. We say, come to the ER. And then one of our own partner ER docs can make sure that they're not having a, you know, cholecystitis or a heart attack or whatever. Um, are the same navigators and physicians who are working in the clinic are also doing consults in the inpatient and the specialty clinic. And we have our own pharmacist. So Lauren Roller is our pharmacist. She also works directly with our pharmacy just to smooth out all of those myriad friction points that patients feel. So that's this core of vertical integration. And then at every other step, you know, we, we don't, we really try not to casually link and refer and connect because we've just seen that that so often is just this setup for failure where it's just it might look good on your note but in reality it's just a setup for failure because on the other end of that line you don't have a reciprocal system set up to accept the person so we're like tunneling through these systems to create like hardwired relationships where you have individuals who know and like and want to work with each other to make sure that when someone's at Cherry Hill, they get their, they, they're able to get high quality addiction care. When someone's at Santa Rita, they don't refer to the bridge. We actually case conference and make and have provide care in simultaneously. And the same thing with all of our, um, all of our various partners. It's a lot of work. But once you get it established, it's very robust and, and, and it feels good to everybody. And it's, we're just at the beginning. I mean, there's huge sort of areas, you know, such as, such as the dental clinic, for example, which is a huge over, um, overlap with folks with opioid disorder that we haven't really built these out yet, but we can. Um, and we're really looking forward to deeping those within primary care, uh, palliative care, pain medicine, and trauma. 
So the um, the the other thing that I think you you know you were really bringing with the bridge is just a simple, compelling philosophy of care. I think underneath a lot of the underdevelopment of addiction resources is this unspoken or felt insecurity about like, what are we really doing? Like, what's the right way to go? And so for good or ill, we just really are consistent. You know, this is about medication first. It's not about holding things like at the end of a complex intake after you've shown, you know, accountability, discipline, and all these things, and then you earn your medication. We, you know, we don't do that. We lead up front with what's going to help you right now to feel better, and we're going to use that as a basis for, um, for engagement. We base everything around connections to care. So the navigators are just the heart and soul. They're friendly, they're relatable, they're there to fix problems um, on all sides of the equation. And we're also not so, I mean, we have some humility that we don't really always know what people need and when they need it. So if I'm, you know, I'm hell bent on getting people to, to get started on buprenorphine, but if they're not ready for it and they need a clean needle, a safe cooker, or something that's going to move them away from harm towards health, I'm in, right? It was a big step for me as a physician to go do that, but, I, but that's what we do. So we've got a really, really robust and aggressive harm reduction um, culture, which just makes for better relationships um, all the way around. The... Um, in terms of the, as I've already kind of, I, I got ahead of myself because I'm just so excited about HEPAC, um, but they're just awesome. You know, there's there, they are, it truly is a community driven accountability to what we do in the bridge. Um, if I do something that's just totally off, like just doesn't hit the tone, the language, you know, bronze is going to call me on it. You know, he doesn't like, he, there's no reason that, that he has to do anything but just be his amazing self and really hold us accountable um, to our highest, highest ideals for, for reaching people um, who are at the greatest risk for overdose and harm from using um, substances. The, this is the hotline um, the, that is 510-545-2765. We probably have about 4,000 interactions on that call. Um, it is an open number. We, it's for providers, it's for patients. Um, it, it's incredibly a lot of labor. Like it's hard to explain how much work this is to keep this available. I don't know how many of you have tried to, to call a doctor. It's impossible, right? Um, so we really put us on the, on, put ourselves on the hook. Like this is not a leave a message, get a callback number. This is really, this is a hotline that leads to real action in real time. Um, and so that if is probably the single most unique sort of vehicle structural piece of the program. And it actually enables all these other integrations to work because we sort of show all these partners like, no, no, we are available. And then it just draws people to sort of figure out like, okay, how can I use this always available service to fill in a gap in my program? Maybe, maybe it's not forever. Maybe it's just for, for over the weekend and they get reintegrated to lifelong or reintegrated to whatever program. Um, and you do that as a kind of a planned prospective way to collaborate. The, um, these are just some examples of just the, you know, these texting, these text messages are just incredible. You know, people really love it. <laughs> uh, you know, it seems simple, but people love connection and um, they're voting with their feet. So our, our numbers are just bonkers, right? Um, it's just going up and up and up and up. 
It's their friends are referring to their friends and pulling them in because they see value. Um, and the providers are raising are rising to the challenge um, to really provide people with good care. So, you know, we have um, we schedule um, around 1500 visits per month. Um, it's just crazy. So we're looking at 800 or nearly you know, 750 unique patients in a given month, um, closer to a thousand over a longer time period. So it's a real, it's just much larger than we would have ever imagined. In terms of our achievements, in terms of our follow-up rates, you know, Evan and his team, Ranjana and Jamie and all the others, it's just awesome. Um, Alameda, I just can't say enough about Alameda Health System signing up for the for the alcohol and other um, use disorder metric. It's a voluntary thing. Most hospitals have just sort of stayed away from this. The fact that our leadership has decided to make this a goal is just makes me incredibly proud to be a physician here at Alameda Health System. And, and so when we're getting results, um, we're, we are blowing away our targets um, in terms of achievement. And we're, and we're really setting the standard for county hospitals in California. Um, this is just this is just a, a real testament to the commission the the commitment of the leadership team um, to place this kind of um, funding at risk um, to achieve within the the, the the domain of substance use disorder care and it's just fabulous. Um, the the innovation here where we really leaned in on the navigator model early really kind of foundationally developed it um, in in a fundamental way that's being rolled out around the country. Uh, because it was very obvious that it works. Um, and with this great data from Evan and Eric Anderson and others, we're really seeing like, yeah, you know, what we saw is true. So if you do have a, have a contact with the sun, you're basically four times more likely to engage, right? 4X. And this is someone, you know, this is not a, you know, this is not a new MRI scanner. I mean, this is, this is not a particularly expensive intervention. Um, a navigator is, is pretty, um, pretty economical and the impact is just massive. Um, so the, and the thing behind this engagement is you, you got to think about all the other negatives that are prevented. So when someone engaged, they feel a belonging, they feel they're, they're basically feeling part of something and they're, there's a cooperation there. Now on the flip side of that is antagonism and exclusion. So every single hospital in the country now is dealing with unprecedented levels of interpersonal conflict and violence. And it's all throwing us off. Like what is going on? How do we deal with this? The navigator program, it's like a, a chaos sponge. It just soaks it up and diffuses things before they happen in a way that, that is, I've never seen any other intervention work um, in that way because it gets to the root of things. Because when people feel like they're, they're, they're getting their needs met and they belong to something, their, their motivation to, to really push against, um, it, it just goes away. So it's not, a, you know, not perfect, not for everything, but it's, it's certainly inspiring. Um, very specifically, I wanna call out um, that, that this group mentioned the last time I came here about John George. Um, and we're, we're really very proud to, to report that this integration is happening, that um, we received a grant and then that grant has been backed up um, into the budget by the leadership team. And we're in the process of, we have an open job description, we're interviewing folks and really any week now we should actually have boots on the ground 
with a navigator at John George. It took a lot of configuring to see how this really was going to work. I did some site visits there, talked with the team, and interestingly, we're probably going to pair it very closely with, with pharmacy, um, which has been a theme at other hospitals in California where pharmacy plays a really big role here. So that's something I'm really excited about. The other thing is just, again, this that we, we received our federal qualification, which is just, you know, from $17 to, <laughs> to whatever, 375. It's an enormous difference in terms of, of compensation and really puts us on a, on a firm ground for sustainability. So that's just wonderful. Um, Karen Wise and um, Damon Francis and so many others that were just really, really drove that and made that happen. It's just incredible. Um, now, a little bit of a pivot. Um, I mean, obviously, I'm an enthusiast. I really believe what we're doing, but I do need to just sort of be real in that we're living in a really catastrophic time right now in Alameda County, um, as heroin and cocaine are being replaced by synthetic fentanyl and crystal methamphetamine. This is something that there were many sort of bulwarks against this within Oakland that have to do with I honestly, it would have to do with our historic involvement with the previous generation of, of black tar heroin and cocaine. So there's a lot of local resistance to a supply side change that swept through San Francisco and other, other communities earlier, but that's all crumbling. Um, and so what it means is these actual substances, which are you know, heroin is a poppy that you grow and you score it and you squeeze out the, the, the sap and you dry it and you put this whole, it's like farm to table, right? So there are just inherent potency caps um, that are just built into the, to the actual substance that are gone, right? This is literally what it goes to. So it means that you're dealing with these synthetic, incredibly potent substances, fentanyl and methamphetamine, by folks who are shoddy, like they, they don't know how to handle it. They don't really have, have the experience and know-how to manage something as strong as fentanyl. So there's just tons and tons and tons of errors. So you'll see cocaine that's supposed to, they'll have fentanyl in it, and then that person stops breathing. Um, they use the same blenders, the same tools, like all of this sloppiness that just leads to death. And so it's really hard to, to, to figure, you know, how do we, you know, how do we manage this situation um, aside getting folks, you know, away from use, you know, and that's really through buprenorphine and methadone. The, the statistics are, are, are just are horrifying. So in, the, um, in Alameda County since 2018, the overdose rates in African-American community has gone up by six or seven times. Right? It's gone up in all groups, but particularly this community, um, it's, it's, it's just absolutely devastating um, and it should horrify all of us. Um, it's not going to stop, right? I mean, the economics here are just too powerful. And so the whole illicit drug supply economics is being reconfigured um, with, the, with these incredibly potent um, easy to easy to transport substances that you can make in in a uh, office park in Mexicali versus having to have like a whole network of farmers and all this stuff, right? So it's not going away. This is the future. Um, so looking forward, um, you know, the, the things we're really working on is the 
part of what's happening as we transition to fet methamphetamine and fentanyl is the complexity of addiction medicine is going up um, much higher um, for some sort of wonky pharmacologic reasons. Um, but I know, for example, and probably four years ago, I went to the state and recruited the, the poison control line to begin providing um, on-call support to physicians starting buprenorphine around the state. And so I stay involved with them on getting their calls, like what do physicians call for? So the complexity and number of their calls has just gone, out, gone, gone way, way up. Um, so this has really driven us in that this seemed initially like, okay, maybe this is just something where treatment starts everywhere. We just teach every, every person in the system to do this simple generalist thing of start buprenorphine and that will fix it. It, that's clearly part of the solution, but what we're really seeing is that we have a lot of very, very complex cases that involve injury, pain, addiction, and, and medical illness and psychiatric illness altogether that you just need an addiction team to manage. Um, so that's something we're really looking forward to, to building out is a more robust uh, addiction service on the, for the inpatient to be able to produce the best outcomes possible in this group. The other thing is that there's this just there's this history of racism in, um, in, in everything to do with drug policy and treatment. And buprenorphine is a particularly strong example of that. Is this that, that uh, African-Americans are much less likely to get started on buprenorphine and much less likely to stay on it. We see that as a big mission of ours is to just change that and to push the other direction. Um, and we feel very happy that we're recruiting um, many people of color into the bridge program but once we've basic, once we've made contact and initiated, where we are, we're seeing that there's definitely a disparity. This, this, these are odds ratios, so a little difficult to interpret. But basically, this is saying that that African American communities are less likely to stay engaged in care after we reach them. The the first piece is we're probably reaching folks um, who in the in the past were not interested in or did not have access to care. So we're reaching a whole new group of people. And now that when we reach them though, we're seeing that they're less likely, um, perhaps not unsurprisingly, less likely to, be, to stay in care. So for us, this is the, the sort of the next step is we've got this scale and scope and, and frictionless easy entry. But once, they're, once we've got them in, like once we've made a toehold, what additional psychosocial, medical, behavioral interventions can we do to, to actually really keep them retained in treatment, um, which is where the social determinants of health, I think, are really going to be key there. So that would be something looking forward that we really would love to, to deepen because we think we can move the needle here. Um, so in conclusion, um, you know, thank you. Um, this is an incredibly excited time, exciting time. Um, the Bridge Clinic is, is leading the nation, um, we're, which is just a fantastic place to be because it means we get grants, we, we, we get support, uh, we get morale, we get great staff. We um, have completed the, the federal qualification piece of the FQHC journey, which is just a huge step. Um, we really look forward to standing up a consult service and then deepening and broadening our system integration continuing to lever technology through our, our grants to be more efficient, be more scale and have better analytics to come back with more fine grained and detailed and to deepen our multidisciplinary intensity of the per individual care.
You know, like once we've got them in, how, what can we do better? Uh, and with that, I just want to uh, thank you so much. And I want to put out there, you know, um, it's only Monday through Friday, nine to five, but, you know, would invite all of you guys to text this line, give a call um, and chat with any of our navigators sometime um, in, and just kind of see for your, you know, learn, learn for yourselves how it goes. So with that, uh, I conclude and thank you. Thank you, Dr. Herring. If you'll close slides so we can look at each other. Yes. I'll open this up for trustee comment. Um, uh, trustee Banerjee. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Herring, and to you and your outstanding team. I mean, this is a shining example. Everything we read, we spoke about in our first article about, you know, transforming. It's this, this is, this is the embodiment and manifestation of that. And so much of the time spent, we design a service line or a specialty service line. We center the clinician or the organizational convenience around like, what can we do? And this is really showing like what it means to center our patients and to do this with dignity and to, because for the folks who are coming to our being, you know, our, um, part of bridge are the folks who have the least amount of agency and self-determination in so many ways they are marginalized to have a space that actually is thinking about that is centering their priorities their dignity their, and and holding up the their agency has ripple effect in so many ways outside of this relationship and this treatment that you're doing is so impactful. So again, uh, just uh, this Don Berwick uh, should hear about this, like this should be the uh, IHI should be because this is this is really what it is. This is just amazing. And the things you said about like the importance of navigating like what a difference that makes the cancer collaborative is working on it and you know like what a difference it makes if this is something that is we have the highest like african americans have the highest level of prostate and colon cancer and others like other service lines could be like uh, taking some of these approaches from you know, and embedding like some of these guiding principles into their work as well. And then the second thing I think that really uh, resonated is that all of the people fall through the cracks during the transitions of care and to be able to like not do this whole like checkbox we referred, but actually do hold that space as difficult. I mean, even though you say, it, I don't think we can fully understand ever how difficult it is to be holding that with only the folks who are doing this work will know that. So, uh, but that is remarkable and thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Trustee, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Jensen, any comments? No, I, I, I really appreciated the presentation. It was, uh, as always, the bridge program is meeting the needs of the most vulnerable patients most vulnerable um, Alameda County residents. And it definitely is a model and, it, and I'm glad to hear that it's being replicated. And I look forward to seeing the FQHC full approval sometime really soon. Yeah, that'll be great. Um, Dr. Herring, great presentation as always. Uh, amazing work as always. Uh, I'll say as this health system 
begins its long journey to becoming the best safety net health system in the country, uh, the bridge is on the vanguard of what of what we're trying to do here. So keep doing that stuff, man. Thank you, Taft. Okay. Um, with that, we'll close out item E. We'll do item F very quickly. This is just a planning calendar and issue tracking. Uh, uh, November uh, is... Uh, is the last uh, month of presentations for Board of Trustees committees. We are dark in December. Uh, I made the mistake last year of putting QPSC on the evening before Thanksgiving. I won't do that again. Actually, the, the clerk of the board didn't allow me to do that. So we will be the third week of November next month instead of the fourth week. So that will be November 16th. So for our quality team, we're gonna be a week shorter than normally, but at least we get the Wednesday night off. So that's really the only thing. And then we're, of course, all board committees are dark in December. So with that, we will close item F. Sorry for running a little bit late here. Uh, we're gonna move into closed session, which will hopefully trustees be less than about 10 minutes. Does that sound right, Dr. Tornabene? Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, so we'll, uh, we've now ended the open session uh, for October 26, 2022 uh, uh, council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. The uh, Quality Committee of the Board will now go into closed session to consider those items as stated on the agenda. Everyone have a great evening. Good evening, everybody. We've returned from uh, closed session council. The Quality Committee of the Board met in closed session and approved the medical staff reports and the Quality Committee took no further action. Thank you, council. Thank you everybody for attending the October 26, 2022 QPSC. Everyone have a wonderful evening. Remember that we will be on the third week of this month, not the fourth week of next month. Have a great evening. Thank you.